0: podcast. This is episode number 65. I'm Joel. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Zach Stein, and I'm wondering why did it take me so long to get him on the podcast? I've been a fan of his work for quite some time. Zach is a brilliant thinker. He is an educator, a writer, a futurist. whose work fo- focuses on education and social justice, and deeply through the lenses of developmental psychology and integral meta-theories. He he published a great book recently, Education in, in a Time Between Worlds. And in this podcast, we'll talk about this pivotal moment we are in humans' history, where the old structures are falling apart. How do we orient ourselves? What kind of myths are becoming outdated? Zach likes to talk about the power of myth, and he'll talk about the 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 hero myth and how that's becoming outdated what kind of myths are emerging now that will empower us or aid us to move through these times and he's going to give a pretty damning verdict on social media and the role that's playing in these times in the breaking down of these times if you've seen the social dilemma you will or if you haven't you should and <laughs> if you have you'll know what he's pointing at here. And so there's a lot in this podcast. We'll have more coming up soon that will focus explicitly on coaching, but I I just want to bring you who I feel are the best thinkers out there that will give us a a picture of these times we're in and the kinds of leadership and coaching and deep transformational work needed. And so I will I will bring in people who will speak about all aspects of that so if you feel inspired I'd love it if you share this podcast I want to get the word out so you can find the share button on Zach's podcast page on our website coachesrising.com on the podcast section there if you're not in our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop you can head to our website coachesrising.com chuck your name in the sign up box you find there and that's All I want to say. So let's dive in. Here's the podcast with Zach Stein. So Zach, great to be with you. How's things with you today? It's going pretty good. It's good. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, great. Um, So yeah, I just in our kind of preamble, in our little check-in, I was just explaining that um, you know uh, I think that you're bringing some important perspectives, uh, or I want to share. The, the the work you're doing and the way you're thinking about the world with our community because it feels like we're entering into just times of disruption right now and um, rapid acceleration of change and, and complexity and so um, so I'd like to talk with you today about yeah, how are you are making sense of the world and what um, what are we being invited to become and um, to practice in these times. So how does that sound.
1: Mm, that sounds, sounds about right.
0: <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, let, let me start by, um, perhaps you could just share a little bit about the work you're doing. Um, and how are you, how are you making sense of these sounds? What what kind of lenses or frames are you looking through? Mm. Yeah, so I'm,
1: a, I think I'm, I'm primarily a philosopher of education, and a writer and a researcher, you know, I've got a network of collaborators, and a variety of projects going. Um, You know, I I began to see the connection between education, kind of writ very very broadly, uh, which is to say not just schooling, but this whole process of intergenerational transmission. I began to see that as related to issues of civilizational collapse, civilizational transformation. Um, And so, you know, my book, Education in a Time Between Worlds, came out last year, uh, but it was actually written for this moment in a sense, I was anticipating and actually already naming what is the case, which is that we are in a time between worlds in a kind of, uh, in a moment when the prior forms are obviously no longer viable, but the new forms have not taken shape yet. So it's a liminal phase. And so a lot of the work that i've been doing has been taking kind of big history approaches to positioning us and so you can look at the time between worlds from a kind of medium historical lens which you can say okay look at the history of the capitalist world system right as elaborated by people like emmanuel wallerstein or uh right when you're looking at these large swaths since the end of the long 16th century where there's been these systematic kind of rollovers in the global hegemon and kind of dynamic changes in the nature of the distribution of capital and commodity supply chains and the dominant nation states and those kind of things. And we're certainly in one of those periods of the end of American dominance and the waiting for the emergence of some new order within the capitalist world system. But I actually think that's too narrow. So you can take an even longer historical view and look at this in terms of the history of civilizations as we've known them since before Christ, right? So then you're looking at that the time between worlds isn't just a kind of new phase of capitalism. It's actually a fundamentally new phase of civilization itself. And so then you're looking at something that's more like a transition from like uh The medieval period to the period that we live in now right the the time between the renaissance and the enlightenment the 30 years war the kind of end of the ancient regime and the birth of the nation state and capitalist modes of production as we've known them or even before that the move out of ancient civilizations into medieval civilizations right the end of the bronze age and the move into the to the prior ages, so that was also, I think, also true. It's both a transition in the nature of capitalism and a transition in the nature of civilization itself. But you can also look at it from an evolutionary time phase, and this is where it gets even more interesting and challenging to hold the situation that we're in. Is that this could be as big as the transformation from kind of pre-hominid form to hominid form, right when language emerged and we started to build culture for the very first time on the savanna as bipedal, uh, you know, uh, primates. Um, When we began to think about our own death and use language and ritual as a part of a burial process, right. Which is to say, this is as big a transformation in the nature of what life itself is about as has ever been experienced and remember there was a time when there were only single-celled organisms and then all of a sudden we got multi-celled organisms and before that there was a time when there was only matter rock dead rock and we got life right so the question of like how big of a transitional period are we in is one of the lenses that i use and i'm willing to say that we are potentially in all of those that this is a profound period of evolutionary emergence. So profound in fact that we can't entirely understand where we are that. And this is true with any of those lenses. When you're in the middle of history, you precisely can't have a vantage point on exactly what's happening, right? That we're part of a process that is much, much bigger and more profound and complex than we can comprehend, uh, and so that feeling of being unmoored, of being in the liminal, of being between worlds, uh, it, it's quite deep. And it requires us to return uh, to very basic aspects of our lives to find grounding. Um, and so I've spoken in a couple of podcasts about, you know, the metaphor of being wandering in the wilderness and that when you're wandering in the wilderness, you can't build an actual temple in space, that you need to build a temple in time, that you need to be able to bring the temple with you wherever you go. And so as the kind of trappings of normalcy fall away and the once dependable rhythms and structures and infrastructures become less dependable and and transitional, Um, then it becomes this question of where can you reside? Um, And, you know, we're blown in the kind of winds of memetic warfare and we're kind of like caught up in kind of radical ideological conflict, I think in part precisely because of this time between worldness that our whole personhood is at stake and we can feel it. So, So that's the other dimension. I bring this like, broad historical sweep and thinking about this in deep sociological terms and evolutionary terms, and also thinking about the, the kind of base realities so the real architectures of the human and the human mind and how those two, two things come together, mm. you know, that humans have weathered transformations of their being as profound
0: as this before. Yeah so much in what you said and i want to come back to quite a bit of it but one thing i wanted to ask you about first was you you mentioned that you know we could look at the capitalist era of the change and then you know the movement between civilizations medieval and so on but then you mentioned that evolutionary kind of um, frame or lens to look through and um that sounds sounds pretty profound as well and I wondered as you were describing that what what tells you or what what sense do you get that it might say we're moving through one of those kinds of transformations
1: uh, I think the the clear sense I get that We're looking at something as significant a transformation as the transformation that occurred when the first kind of like hominids used language like that's the basic thing like the emergence of what we've known as sapience, right? Um, Which is a kind of linguistically mediated cultural construction that involves careful joint attention and intergenerational transmission, just the species-specific traits of the humans that emerged, you know, millions of years ago, um, way before civilization, with nothing like it before on the planet, uh, that we're in that profound of a transition Uh, I think the thing that signals that to me is um, probably the main one is that the dynamics that we are currently caught up in as a civilization uh, are, as Schmachtenberger would say, inexorably self-terminating, right? That we simply cannot go on being this kind of human, uh, that we don't have a lot of time left. And that there's a radical shift that's needed. Um, So that's one, which is that just like when there was among, I think, single celled organism, what was called the oxygen crisis, right? That a tremendous amount of oxygen was in the atmosphere to such an extent that it was poisoning everything. And it looked like all this experiment of life that had emerged from dead rock was going to fail because it had produced a toxin that was basically going to kill itself. And then there was this shift, and I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so I'm telling this secondhand. There was a shift when the ability to actually process oxygen occurred, right? That the thing that was the self-terminating pattern became a catalyst for a radical transformation, emergence of a new kind of life that was able to handle that self-terminating Uh, kind of evolutionary occurrence so similarly we are in a radical state of crisis which is going to require a quite profound transformation at at a very basic level so that's number one are are you
0: talking then about our nature like as in we can be self-oriented or greedy competitive that kind of nature
1: that i I, yes some of it has to do with um uh again, think of how different the rudimentary self-sense of an animal is, as compared to the rudimentary self-sense of those first culture-creating humans on the savannah, as opposed to the self-sense of like an ancient Egyptian, as opposed to the self-sense of a medieval peasant, as opposed to the self-sense of like you and me, right? That the nature of personhood has changed radically and the Kind of transformation that is being asked for now is more fundamental, a shift than any of those prior ones that I named. And it and so the other factor, which gets to answer your question, is the nature of the digital. I think that the digital, and here I'll bring in someone like de Deshardon, that the that the digital allows for such a Fundamental change in the nature of human communication and socialization that we could come to actually shift the locus of identity and the locus of, let's say, sense making and orientation outside of the kind of like modern, self contained, skin encapsulated ego. Um,
0: gotcha. Yeah. Uh,
1: and move into a form of. Kind of like collective being or collective intelligence and awakening. Um, and so that would mean, yeah, a, a quite a fundamental, quite a fundamental shift and not something that's going to be, um, you know, forged in the sunlight with everyone handing roses around. Like this is going to be forged in a lot of darkness and pain and death like these things only occur um in the kind of in the grips of of the demands of life Uh, right so so those are the things that i'm seeing coming and yeah the nature of that transformation is the nature of it's the nature of identity and the nature of what the species is uh the nature of what the species is here to do Um, right you know that the shift out of a kind of simplistic anthropocentrism that was trying to infinitely extract resources from a finite planet, right? To some understanding that we are the species that can take responsibility for all other species, right? It's a remarkable thing, <laughs> like, uh, which is a different kind of anthropocentrism, right? It's not a base anthropocentrism that instrumentalizes nature, but rather noting the uniqueness of the human as the only species that exists that can give itself the dictate to be responsible for all other species, to be the steward of life. Um, And so those kinds of reorientations out of a narrow kind of humanist framing and into a much more profound kind of what we've called in the center for integral wisdom, the a cosmic humanism or a cosmoerotic humanism that sees the interconnectedness between all humans and all human life and the rest of life. So that there could be a civilization that is actually built in the interest of life itself, rather than being a self-terminating kind of virus on the face of the planet. That's about to destroy all life itself. (laughs) (laughs) And so that kind of stark, of a choice point, you know? And when you mentioned Tiliard de Chardin, one must also mention Sri Aurobindo. And he had this quote, and this is probably the third thing that signals the shift. He spoke about processes of planetization, right? That if there had been, if we'd lived on an earth that was infinite plane, which is to say not a sphere, it's a weird thought experiment, but if we lived on in an infinite plane, then we could have just continued to spread out We never would have bumped into one another, but because we live on a sphere, there was this inevitable process of planetization as the species covered the planet. Eventually we would bump into one another and we would basically enclose the entire planet in a layer of psyche, right? The new as it's called. But during that period of planetization, when we finally wrap the planet in our creations and in our thoughts, Orbindo said, you know, there's a race between heaven and hell that it's actually at that moment when we have the opportunity to become what we might become, which is, as I described it, a species that can take responsibility for all of the species. Or we go down this other route, which is quite frightening to behold, when we've encased the whole planet in something like a a giant computer, (laughs) as uh, as has been described. Um, So yeah, so that's that's this choice point. we we can't be the humans we've been because we are now encapsulating the entire planet. We now have a much more radical type of responsibility that is being asked of us. Um, And if we don't step to that level of responsibility, then the human, you know, the human experiment, if you will, will end.
0: Right. Yeah. I want to talk about um, how we might do that. But I have a, a kind of like um question which is somewhat um I don't know how to describe it, but I'm wondering how hopeful you are, and I know that's not really the right question, but I want to ask it anyway, you know like do you have a sense like that you know someone like Margaret Wheatley would say, "Don't have hope uh, you know we're 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 on collapse is happening, civilizational collapse is going to happen, yeah, so don't fight it create islands of sanity and let's see what we, you know, see if we, if we end up getting through it, you know, other people are really trying to respond in ways to, to engage, you know, um, and trying to avert like a a critical crisis, you know, species ending crisis. So I don't know where you're at in that kind of, and again, it might might not be quite the right question, but I want to ask it anyway. Mm.
1: Yeah. I mean, it is the case, as I said, that, the current civilization we're in and the current species that we are, these things are ending. Like this is the end of the world (laughs) as we've known it. And, uh, you know, and so in that sense, I'm not hopeful that the civilization we're in can be salvaged. I think the only way out of this is to create something fundamentally new. Now, I don't think we've crossed a threshold where um, there is basically nothing to do but wait for the self-inflicted extinction of the species to unfold. I think we are still in a place where if the changes in culture and interiority that I've been kind of alluding to, if these things can take place then we don't have to basically actually face the literal physical apocalypse. Instead, we face something like an imaginal apocalypse, which is to say the apocalypse of the mind as we've known it, rather than the end of all life itself. It's the end of a certain way of being and knowing. Um, uh, So in that sense, like, you know, prior to all of the technical problems, and this gets to my focus on education, prior to solving all the technical problems, like how do you stop the nuclear reactors from breaking down? Uh, How do you stop the supply chains from being so fundamentally disrupted that there's mass starvation? How do you stop the third world war from emerging simply because of migrational and issues um, and climate change related scarcity? Those are technical problems, which Our secondary, the primary problem is actually the person itself and even more fundamentally the nature of the communication flows between peoples and this is the digital. So the digital has been captured and turned against us that we are, as I mentioned, blowing in the winds of memetic warfare, kind of captured in this fog of complete confusion.
0: Could could you just say what you mean by memetic warfare uh, to people that might not know that term?
1: Yeah, so what I mean is that uh, social media in particular, but even uh, you know so-called mainstream media outlets um, have been almost completely weaponized and politicized. That uh, informational warfare has taken the place of sincere communication across almost all channels. And what that means is that uh, there is a breakdown in the life world so fundamental that we can't come together and cooperate and actually don't even really want to anymore (laughs) and kind of forgot what it looked like (laughs) to sincerely and earnestly try to build reasonable arguments uh, with other people towards shared goals. And so this is actually in a sense, the most primary problem we have to fix before we fix any other problems is the problem of the destruction and again, complete total warfare of what I would call like the epistemic commons or the educational commons that the containers in which socialization take place, the containers in which science take place, the containers in which political discourse take place, they have been radically and intentionally contaminated. Um, And so if that's not fixed, then, then we're done (laughs) because before anything else takes place, we have to be able to speak with one another and respect one another. And even more specifically, we need to be able to raise the next generation in non-strategic and cooperative ways. Right? So when I say informational warfare, I mean communication environments in which all interactions are completely strategic right? Advertising being the most obvious one. Like advertising is not trying to educate me in my interest. It's trying to manipulate me strategically. And such is the case when the commodity form is applied to the nature of identity itself. And all of the communication I propagate out through social media is actually, even if I'm not aware of it, a form of psychological operation in the military sense, like everyone's running psyops on everybody else. Everyone is advertising for a political view or advertising for a particular stance rather than actually engaging in earnest discourse. And that is pretty unprecedented situation that has developed over about the past decade and even more profoundly since 2016. Uh, and as I said, this has been intentionally created by profit-seeking social media organizations who are harvesting attention for profit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just like you know, modern industrial world brought nature itself to the brink of extinction through endless extraction of natural resources, the kind of postmodern informational capitalism has brought human nature our interior selves, our sense of self and self-esteem, our conceptual schemas and self-understandings has brought those things, brought them into the realm, first of all, of extractable resources. (laughs) And then second of all, extracted so much from the interiorities that there's, we've reached the limits of of the colonization and extraction of the life world, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's why it feels like everyone's losing their minds (laughs) because we, because we basically are because the most, important kind of aspects of the social world what i'm calling the life world or this space of communicative reason uh has been preyed upon and taken from us and so that's yeah
0: yeah. good well before i ask you about uh what we might become or do do you see areas or places where that's not the case you know where there are people coming together in earnest collaboration and you know coherence um you know yeah is, is that kind of do you see that also on the rise is that um, are we in the dark ages of that or yeah. i
1: think we're in something like a dark age yeah okay, that's definitely true now of course those things are taking place you know i mean if, if if that stuff wasn't happening we'd already be long gone um but the spaces where those events can occur um and the classic one being like the family dinner table, right? Because I'm, I'm mostly concerned with this process of intergenerational transmission. Like where in the life world are there pure and non-strategic relationships between individuals? Um, and family systems are one of those places where that basically has to happen. And I would say educational institutions is another place where that has to happen. Uh, So yes, this does occur. There are still existing collaborative student-teacher relationships. There are still existing collaborative, you know, parent-child relationships. But as anyone is aware, uh, you know, the smartphone is at the dinner table as well. Uh, And the main effect in adolescent socialization these days is social media. Uh, And so, I think those non-strategic and like, strictly speaking, collaborative places where humans can be humans, they're dwindling. They're a scarce resource and they actually literally need to be protected. And then we need to roll back the encroachment of these forms of media from those locations. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I don't see a rise of that. I see a a decline of that. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's still the case that participation on things like Twitter and Facebook are seen as a kind of civic responsibility that if one withdraws from Facebook and Twitter, Uh, and is not participating there, then one is seen as being somehow irresponsible or out of touch. And uh, that is completely ass-backwards, in my opinion, that we actually need to get into a situation where participating on those things is like smoking cigarettes or eating junk food, that, yeah, people can do that, but we know that this is bad for you, that, in fact, it is hurting you in a basic sense of like mental health and and here we've seen the statistics i mean it's just clear there's mm-hmm. such a strong correlation between social media use and adolescent mental health crisis and suicide in particular and these numbers are quite striking and disturbing and we also know that the like actual weaponization of information has been on an uptick, which is to say these things, billions of dollars are flowing in to the creation of uh, disinformation campaigns and artificial intelligence bots that basically argue with people on social media platforms. Um, And these stories are aware, we know that Facebook has manipulated people's news feeds as part of psychological experiments and continues to do that. We know that my newsfeed is completely different from your newsfeed is completely different from her newsfeed and that they're customized to capture our attention and to keep us addicted. Like this stuff, people know, but they kind of shrug their shoulders and they say, well, we have to use it anyway. Um, and so it's akin to the situation like with cigarettes in like the fifties and sixties, where it's like, yeah, the data's mounting, that smoking cigarettes, <laughs> it's going to kill us. Uh, but there wasn't a reckoning until quite a bit later. Uh, and so I think we're going to look back at this period, if we're fortunate enough to be able to look back at this period as a, as a massive, massively irresponsible play on the part of, uh, again, extractive informational capitalism that has, you know, destroyed the minds of an entire generation. Um, uh. So this is, again, that's kind of like all the stuff I said about self-terminating, civilizational patterns, and evolutionary transformation. All of that follows from this basic thing we need to fix. And as as a philosopher of education, it seems quite stark and clear to me that if we don't clarify the conditions of socialization from predation and extraction uh, and weaponry, uh, then we won't have anything that looks like civil discourse or reasonable and self-reflective identity formation. Uh, we mm. get people who've been uh, basically captured by certain mimetic tribes and have become weaponized in social media space as propagators of informational tactics that were basically imposed upon them. Uh, yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, and, you know, I, I kind of, I've been hammering pretty hard on this because I think uh, people are quite complacent here. Um, yeah. and, uh, the question of what to do is a separate question. I don't want to confuse the digital, which I said is actually an evolutionary, uh, driver. Like the digital shouldn't be confused with the technologies we have today. Right. The, the technologies we have today have run interference on the possibility of the actual liberational technologies that are part of the digital. Um, and so I'm not saying I'm not anti-technology. I'm not anti-computers. I'm not even anti-social uh, network creation through the digital I am opposed to these very specific forms that have been called referred to as like surveillance capitalism and things of that nature which have taken the digital and made it into a particular kind of thing uh and that particular kind of thing is 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 uh is destroying us at the, the very basic level of identity formation um,
0: yeah 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 no I I totally agree. And I'm just appreciating how lucidly you're laying that out. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's like a number of directions we could go in now. Um, I'd love to hear perhaps you speak about how the digital can be part of our evolution. But I think I want to first ask you about, you know, in your original kind of opening, you mentioned this temple in time and you mentioned the imaginal apocalypse and, um, my questions forming as I say it, but it, I, I get, I think I'm inviting you to speak about this idea of, of myth and um, the imaginal. Uh, what is that? And um, you know, the idea of a temple in time is a kind of, it's a, I don't know if we call it a metaphor, but it, it's something that immediately evokes a certain embodied possibility for me mm. as you, as you say it. So perhaps you could talk about, those things like myth, the 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 need for myth in these times and, and the idea of a temple in time and, and the, the imaginal, how that can be a resource for us. What is that? Yeah. So, right. Yeah,
1: yeah, totally. I mean, the, I mean, the basic idea here comes from archetypal psychology, you know, like James Hillman in the lineage of, of Jung. Um, and the notion is that, uh, experience is shaped by the psyche in terms of certain kind of root metaphors or archetypal frames that every gesture every speech act the significant that it the significance that it has can't be read off of the surface that the significance of these things that are deeper they're in the root metaphor of self they're in the root metaphor or archetype of who you are And what those things look like, the archetypes or the root metaphor that give meaning to your life and and experience, they look like little fragments of myth, right? They look like the most basic images within the imagination that frame the identity and the world itself. Could
0: could you give us an example uh, just to... Of course, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, So, you know, the... uh, you know, again, back to social media, right? That the asynchronous text-based exchange on social media, um, why does someone spend the emotional time and energy to argue with someone through text-based exchange where it's not immediate back and forth, right? And so it becomes this question of what is the resonant image when the person's sitting at the keyboard typing? Who do they think they are, right? Um, are they something like the kind of like hero at the keyboard, right? Fighting the powers of darkness and ignorance, right? That actually the, they're doing all of these things over many hours but the resonant kind of like chords that are vamping in the background and giving meaning to those keystrokes are an image that's resounding in their mind of who they are, right? Bringing light to the darkness on the internet, right? And that may not be explicit thing that they're thinking, but it's an image that they've gleaned. It's an image that they've gleaned from movies or an image that they gleaned from high school when they were being socialized by, certain kind of science teacher or something that taught them about overcoming, you know, ignorance through fact or something like that. Right. So it's, so in that case, it's not a myth in the sense of like you're embodying a particular ancient God or something. Although sometimes it is, you get your myths, your whole, I am actually Christ like liberating people's souls or something like that. And that again could be implicit unconscious, but the idea is that uh, the standard justification you're giving uh, which is that I really care about this issue and this guy's misunderstanding this issue and I'm going to argue with him and get him to understand this issue. That's like the frontal personalities arguing that. There's a deeper, often unconscious personality that's riding the waves of some kind of like quasi-mythic self-understanding. And so the goal of archetypal psychology is often to bring to the surface what those deeper metaphors of self are so that they can be examined and then potentially shifted or questioned, right? Um, That the actual myth you're living in when you're typing on social media, arguing with this person you've never met in an asynchronous text exchange, like that, the actual situation there is more like the myth we saw in the matrix, right? Where you're actually in a pod and you've got something plugged into the back of your head and it's extracting energy from you that you're part of a vast extractive mechanism of surveillance capitalism. And you're kind of like is pawn in a much bigger game of energy and profit-seeking and and domination. That's the actual thing that's happening, (laughs) right? That's the myth that you're actually in that aligns with reality as opposed to the myth that you think you're in that's masking the reality. So the alignment of the mythic structure of your self-understanding with the actual mythic mythic structure of the anima mundi, which is to say the world soul is important, right? Like, and so I talk a lot about um, how life is structured tragically, that in fact, the situation one finds oneself in as a human is one where everyone you love will die, you will die, there will be sickness, there will be suffering, right? That one of the basic patterns of life is a tragic structure. And so what that means is that at least some part of the personality needs to run on a kind of base metaphor or myth that can deal with tragedy, (laughs) right? And so that's an example where if you don't have archetypes within you that can fit into the tragic structures of the world you live in, then there will be untold suffering, misunderstanding, way worse grapplings with reality than there would be if you actually, there was a part of you that could fit into the anima mundi and deal with the tragic situations that are around you. And so, you know, there are other ways of understanding uh, the kind of basic metaphors of self. Um, And they are to be found in some of the great religious traditions, some of the great mythologies, uh, some of the great, you know narratives of fiction and cinema that there's a there's a pantheon of fragments of myth that we can draw on as needed to to fit with the mythic structure of the world so it's it's that relationship between the root archetype of self and the and the mythic structure of the anima mundi that becomes essential
0: right how how would you then, um, you know, we talked about that we're in this liminal space. How would you apply that idea or that frame to, you know, how we can then move through these times perhaps with more grace or compassion or wisdom, you know, so that we don't reach that critical point of, of the apocalypse, you know? So yeah. Does that make sense? And then it does. does. Yeah. So you have to think about, you know, what, what are the
1: forms of mythic self-understanding that allow someone to be adaptable within liminal spaces, right? Like, so for example, um, the, the understanding of self that relies upon predictable civilizational conditions, like won't cut it, right? That the notions of self that allow one to escape from the intimacies of human suffering in spiritual pursuits won't cut it, right? That the temple of time is actually a temple of care and caregiving. That the places we need to be able to find refuge are right here in the intimacy with one another. Um, And so, you know, in contexts where we're not in the liminal, like at the height of a civilization, (laughs) right? The Indus River Valley at the height of Hindu civilization or, you know, the 1950s and 60s America, the kind of like dominance and birth of American hegemony, like where institutional structures and habits of life are, are, are really solid. Right, that requires a different type of personality um it's uh you know the kind of sense of contributing to things that have long lasting value of being a part of a stable you know organizational structure um and a kind of coherent cultural milieu where your contributions can be clearly valued and those kinds of things like you can understand yourself that way in those contexts and and be doing okay if you you understanding yourself like that now, then you are going to run into a lot of confusion and pain because most of the stable organizational forms that were created, uh, during the past 30 years are slipping away. You know, most of the ability to be a cultural agent, um, are so dynamically changing that, uh, there's a retreat into uh, a different form of identity that's requested. And like I said, it's a retreat into that temple within time, where we disinvest from the sand castles that we could be building in the world and reinvest in the life world and in one another. Um, and, and so I think that is that's part of it. And so, it's not the time to be a hero, right? Mm. All the hero myths are self-terminating stories. Just, just it, note that.
0: <laughs> it's interesting because I, I know it's within myself and um, a lot of people, I think probably a lot of people listening, they certainly feel the evolutionary pressure of this time and um, who am I called to be in this time? and you know in some sense it evokes in me this desire to serve you know to to right. how how can i serve in these times not from um necessarily uh you know the well maybe the hero of like oh yeah i need to save the world but more how can i surrender and serve you know right. to to be a conduit perhaps for what wants to come through me in as a kind of natural response in these times but that sounds like you are saying, in a way, like yeah, you know, it might not, it might not be the, it might not be the quite the right myth or or archetype to be holding right now. It might be about coming back into oneself and, you know, um, sensing, you know, being in some kind of regenerative space and and loving one another, loving your family, holding your loved ones tight, and and so on. But
1: but service is the right word. And again, the the hero myth is not a myth of service. (laughs) The hero myth is a myth of conquering the dark and chaotic forces and bringing order to an orderless world and kind of like triumphing over uh, enemies and creating things of lasting and enduring impact. That's the hero myth. Um, The hero myth is not about sensitive caregiving for the disabled, right? The hero myth is not about kind of like paying attention to the weakest and most vulnerable members of society as society comes apart, right? The hero myth is uh, basically gonna draw us up and out of the life world and into these meta-narratives about the broader, more significant things that one could do way more significant than let's say looking after the least well off right uh and so what i'm saying is that to kind of bring some of the things together like precisely because the cultural environment has been completely disrupted by extractive informational capitalism all of the meta narratives that we would pledge allegiance to as part of our hero's journey can't basically be trusted (laughs) that you know, when you basically do something heroic for the sense of re-representing it into social media as a sign that you're alleged, kind of have an allegiance to a particular politicized meta-narrative, that's the the opposite of heroic action. It's actually working as a very sophisticated advertiser for Facebook. Um, And I'm saying that we need to abandon (laughs) the hope that those types of actions will do what's necessary and return to the types of actions in our immediate lived experience with concrete other people in our actual lives, that those are the actions that now matter. Now, depending where you are, the concrete people in your actual life could be very important, powerful people, right? Because these are the people you're interacting with every day by virtue of where you've ended up. And or both, sometimes the actual people in your concrete lives can be your family, right? The people on your block, the people in the local area that are also feeling kind of like the chaos and unwinding. And so it's this question of like, um, and again, here's, here's a great mythic image, right? The good Samaritan, right? The good Samaritan. Like it's important to understand that when Jesus or whoever that was represented as saying this in the Bible, uh, gives the story of the good Samaritan. He he's, he's a Jewish person speaking to other Jews, right? And the Samaritans are another religious group which were spurned by the Jews at that time, that the Jews didn't like the Samaritans, right? And yet Jesus tells a story to these Jewish people about the good Samaritan on the road who finds a stranger in distress and helps them. Now, remember, the image of being on the road is another good mythic image, right? Because you're between the rule of law. You're on the road. You're not in a city that's run by a particular rule of law and then some other city which has some other laws. You're between the rule of law, you're between civilizational norms. So you're in the wild, you're in the wilderness and you encounter a stranger on the road in need, right? What are you gonna do, right? If you're a hero and you're going to conquer that city, right? you're gonna walk right by that person in need because you have a much more important thing to do and everyone's waiting back home looking for you to send reports and advertise what you've accomplished by trying to conquer this city. So that guy's insignificant, right? But if you are running with a different archetypal metaphor of who you are as you're moving through the wilderness, you will catch the moment in time, drop the temple and space excuse me, drop the temple around you and the person in need, and actually bring the care and concern that's needed to the stranger on the road. Um, and so this is, that's the basic question. It's like, we can't look around because we're on the road. We can't look around to, well, what's, who's going to tell me what to do here?" Like what's the normal social expectation for what one does in this circumstance? Like all that's up in the air. So we have to retreat to the kind of imminent experience of the other and kind of return to the metaphysics of love, as you were mentioning, um, which is a much more basic primary form of mythic self-understanding um not the conquering hero but the uh the basically the the lover of humanity mm. uh with with all of the, the pain and difficulty and often self-effacement that comes with that stance um as opposed to the self-aggrandizement of the heroic journey uh, and you know Maslow. Maslow talked about uh, self-transcendence. Um, you know as this highest rung of of human development, and he used this phrase. You know, you must find the altar upon which you will sacrifice yourself, um, and that's very different from finding the stage upon which you will aggrandize yourself, right? Um, and so this this question of if all those stages are actually rigged, (laughs) if all the stages have been set up to trick you into using your time to make profit, basically explicitly for other people, um, then you have to get out the fuck off the stage and you have to find an actual concrete place to be with other people that matters. Um, Mm. And uh, you know, the number, one of the main things that helps people overcome depression is caring for caring for people caring for for people who are in demonstrably worse situations for them Mm -hmm. right it's like yeah you can meditate or you can do ayahuasca or whatever the hell people think is going to help them but at the end of the day the number one thing we need to do is figure out how to actually care about one another again
0: just an example of that the other day it's slightly different but um i was in a really difficult place you know very intense emotional experience and energetic experience anyway i went into a you know sleep deprivation i've got a little baby i was you know i was and then i went into a coaching session and i just gave myself to that person you know and i came out and i just felt (laughs) completely different you know i felt much better basically um and i I, Yeah. yeah go ahead well i'm
1: saying i understand that like all of this thing that we call the human experience and especially civilization it's just billions and billions of interactions, right? Mm. So it's like, it is billions and billions and billions of opportunities to do what you did, which is to give of yourself to someone else, right? Uh, And that's kind of what I'm pointing towards. I'm like, the degree to which we're distracted by these meta-narratives that are propagating through the field of social media is the degree to which we're not able to be present with the person that's actually in front of us who needs us, Mm. And, you know, that being able to identify that, being able to identify, like, what is the unique obligation you have in your unique context of life? Uh, mm-hmm. And are you actually being drawn out of those unique obligations and put up into a social media sphere that's homogenizing your obligations as if? The kind of signaling that takes place on virtue media in
0: virtue
1: <laughs> right the kind of signaling that takes place on social on social media is is the sign of virtue um, and uh, you know we 're all driven by and this gets into the mechanics of how it works we 're all driven by the need to regulate self esteem right and self understanding and you know there are arguments to be made that social media is addictive because of kind of the dopamine hits and the the fastness of the cut and the shortening of attention span and you get addicted to the sensory input and that's true in part but the kind of like more insidious thing that's happened here is that we have hooked our mechanisms for regulating self-esteem into the social media dynamic right. so that the immediate context around us of our family and clients and people that we could care for in our neighborhood and these things, that that immediate, con- immediate context is insufficient to make one feel that they are a quote unquote good person, that they are valuable, that they can reflect on who they are and feel secure in their worthiness of respect, right? And so social media has run interference on the ability to regulate self-esteem in embodied life world contexts and made it so that actually the constant kind of churning through social media and dynamic interaction with it is the means by which one regulates one's self-esteem. Yeah. And that's a deeply problematic pattern, right. especially yeah. when
0: you're looking at adolescent socialization. Um, and I mean those people haven't even grown up yet, and i th- I think like it could be easy for someone listening to go, "Oh yeah, okay, social media, but you know the the fact that we're it's so insidious, you know that it's crept in you know and we and we kind of haven't noticed except that I notice i you know I just don't feel good after I've been on Facebook, you know that's just quite clear to me I don't mostly don't come off it going, Wow, wow, that energized me and left me feeling whole, you know." Um, you feel
1: confused about whether or not, uh, you're valuable. You feel confused about what's going on in the world. And, but you also feel like potentially if you were to stay on more that confusion would be alleviated.
0: <laughs> <you're> right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. So that's when that's a, it's a perfect kind of cycle of addiction. Um,
0: I want to ask you a question though. I mean, just a, co- a comment, like I certainly, um, you said about, I can't remember the words you used, but what, what it brought up in me was the, 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 the temptation, and, and I'm, I'm seeing how connected that is to the kind of self-promotion of the social media world of um, creating a certain persona, you know, that becomes reified, like that's projected out into the world. And that it's, you know, I'm comparing mine to others, you know, and, right. and at the same time recently, um, how it, these times feel like that, that I'm grieving, you know, I'm basically, I'm humble. I'm every day. I'm, I feel humbled. And, um, uh, like, it's like who who I am is, is being pulled from underneath the rug is being pulled from underneath my feet, you know, and, um, that it, it, it's painful, and yet, it's it's also beautiful. You know that in that humility, I'm broken, open, and and there's a kind of intimacy with life that that emerges. Like I'm that I'm worn down, you know, and that in that wearing down process, that there's a kind of love that, that of life that's emerging. You know that it's and um, I don't quite know where I'm going with that statement, but but what I wanted to Bring in was what? What is this conversation here? You know, like here we are, two souls who've come together, and we are, you know, inspired to 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 speak and share. And um, and maybe it brings in what you mentioned about the digital, you know, as a as a as a form for a collective intelligence or evolution. It's like, yeah, what what is this? Like that's my question. I'm going to hand it over to you in a sec. Is it is this another form of um? putting forward a certain memetic conversation or, you know, um, polarized perspective or, or is this, you know, is this, um, and we're both heroes, you know, and we're putting forward, or or are we in a non-strategic interaction, something that may might serve humanity, you know, and what, and what is the role of this? This will be shared digitally through the podcast and reach people from all around the world, you know? And so, I'm fine. I'm, I'm just going to share that. I'm not quite, my question's not quite clear, but I think you get what I'm saying. Right.
1: Yeah, totally. And like I said, the digital is not the problem. It's the capture of the digital by extractive information, capitalism or surveillance capitalism. That's the problem. Uh, and so, yeah, in a sense it has saturated most aspects of what we know of as the digital, like this will be propagated likely through Twitter and Facebook as a means to draw attention to it. Um, and, so yeah, so there's a couple of things kind of worth noting. You know, one is that uh, long-form content sincerely engaged uh, and kind of organized according to deep stores of collective memory. That's one of the main things that digital can afford, right? the digital affords shared representations of collective memory uh, in a completely profound way so like if you take McLuhan like you're looking at the printing press which was pretty amazing and then the electric which gave us radio and television and then the digital right so what's the difference between the printing press and the television it seems pretty obvious and then the question of what's the difference between the digital and television if you're confused about what the digital it's not as it sounds obvious that well the digital is just a Really fancy way to have a many, many, many millions of channels on your TV and radio, <laughs> right? It's it's not being used. It's it's not being used the way it could be. Um, so you know, one of the things that's happening, at least as I understand um, the, the podcasts that I do, is that I am doing these for posterity, basically for logging within the ever expanding memory of the species that is now being digitized. Uh, and so mostly I'm not speaking directly to anyone, but you like, I'm not holding in particular audiences. Uh, but I am trying to find a way to, to use these long forms and long form engagements like podcast, uh, to, to leave some kind of record. Um, which will hopefully be more enduring than the kind of like hourly churning of social media news feeds. And so that's one of the things that's happening is that, you know, hour long discussions and reading books that, you know, that take days to read and things like that are being kind of, uh, you know, access to these things, the attention spans to engage with these things, these things are being downgraded, um, And so I never would say to people, don't use computers, right? But I would say, use them in ways that actually bring forward the true potential of the digital. Um, And one of those potentials is the ability to have massive, massive collective stores of memory. Um, And so one of the things I feel that's happening in this conversation is just simply going on record. Like we don't know how long these things will survive in the digital sphere. And we don't know years from now who will be able to listen to these things. Um, So that's that's one bit is that I'm trying to not get caught in kind of like 24 hour news cycle concerns, but to move the discourse up to deeper levels of conversation, deeper levels of memory. Um, So that's, I think, one of the aspects. And then the other thing is that you know, there's something miraculous because you're across the pond as it were, you know? And uh, so this idea of synchronous conversation mediated through these kind of broadband networks and these complex computers, like there's something remarkable here. And back to that notion of planetization where it's like the unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe is upon us, right? The unbearable intimacy of planetary catastrophe. And that's what this is. There's a digital intimacy that is possible. And it's precisely the kind of hits of that that people get that keep them sucked into a lot of what is bad about the digital, that that we feel the potential of it. We feel the potential of it to bring everyone together and to have everyone brought together in such a way that what happens is then stored in memory forever, right? like TV happened, it was ephemeral, you watched the show, it was over. Maybe eventually you could get a VHS tape of it, but there wasn't a sense that we were all contributing to the collective memory of the entire species that would be captured in this digital mainframe. And so that notion of like, yes, like the digital is one of our main hopes, but we have to clarify what it actually is. And this is one of the things that it actually is. Like, this is a real-time video conversation where I'm getting almost no delay and you're like crystal clear. And it's like, whoa, this is a remarkable and intimate experience that is completely unprecedented in human history where we can actually sit around a fire together and have deep, long-form conversations with people from completely different parts of the world. Uh, And so that potentiality of the digital is some of what is the reason I do podcasts even though i know they're going to be up and circulated on social media stuff there's also this sense of like yeah but there's a potential in the digital to yeah heal some of this and to bring us together
0: well i I, because i feel like there's a potential and this might sound a bit grandiose but for this conversation to be part of the evolutionary kind of emergent process you know that um maybe that's what you mean but it's like yeah. People listen to this. Like I listen to other podcasts. I've listened to podcasts of you and it, it inspires something inside of me. It it evokes something inside of me. I feel a sense of inspiration and that, that inspiration has a kind of evolutionary erotic charge to it, you know, that, that, that can, can kind of manifest down from the subtle into, into the conversations I have with people into the way that I see the world, you know, so that, there's something very profound about that, you know, and I, right. I, that's what gives me hope. And, you know, I see different groups of people emerging now who were exploring emergence, who are exploring the, the kind of um, sense making, you know, itself, which, which gives me hope. And, so, um, yeah, I, don't, I wanted to share that because I, like, I feel like there's, some, there, there's something really beautiful about that, you know, that people will be touched.
1: You know, I, I agree, and that's again, like I said, why I why I continue to do podcasts because there it is a relatively unprecedented medium. You know, insofar as there's this massive log of them, and there's so many uh, kind of diverse conversations that are happening across so many kind of cultural niches, uh, and that. Yes, you know, despite the kind of churn of extractive information on capitalism through social media, there is kind of despite that, there's this growing set of resources and this growing kind of potentiation for radical evolutionary change. Um, and I, I don't think we know what it looks like. Like, I don't think we've seen it yet. I think it's going to look quite unprecedented um, in terms of when – the digital finally gets repurposed and all of the stuff that's been laid down in the digital up to that point gets kind of like salvaged and brought up into a new fundamental form of human community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that has a lot to do with these kind of like arguably almost incorruptible and perpetually sustainable forms of digital memory which could collectively represent the entirety of human experience. Um, uh, So, you know, McLuhan talked (laughs) a lot using kind of Christian Catholic metaphors about the digital potentiating the kind of like um, sublimation of humanity into the corpus mysticum or the mystical body of God. Right. And that the, sense we have among transhumanists that we're going to all upload our consciousness into the mainframe is, is actually a kind of misunderstanding or literalization of something that is actually happening, which is that we are being brought up into the body of digital memory, which serves as the, something like the platform or the springboard for an evolutionary leap. And I, and again, I don't know what that looks like, you know, Um, Is it an artificial intelligence that has the capacity to teach us about what we actually are, right? Is it a form of digital networking, uh, you know, that kind of creates a context of socialization that changes the nature of the human identity fundamentally and liberates a profound collaborative capacity in creative capacity that's completely unprecedented right like so i think there are other 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 futures which are like ready to go <laughs> uh it's a question of kind of what the catalysts and tipping points are going to be for those things to 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 kind of unfold and show the way forward um mm.
0: uh yeah well um, I know we're at the time we said we would finish. So I want to respect that, but I do have a, another question. So maybe if we can't continue, we have to say, we have to do a part two at some point. But, I can handle one more question and then I got to run. All right. The, the the question is like, there'll be a lot of coaches listening and just wondering um, what you might say to people. Um, you know, maybe there's an invitation to be made to people Um, you know, that might relate to the mythic or, you know, how do we, how do we orient towards these times more skillfully? I don't know if there's something you might offer to people listening.
1: I mean, a few things, right. I've I've said a few things that I think are relevant to coaches. Um, you know, one of them is get off social media (laughs) and encourage your clients to do the same. Um, And the other is find a way to build the temple of care within time, Um, which is to say, uh, you know, understand the significance of the work that's done in the life world one on one. You know, don't believe that what the way forward is is creating something massive and enduring that in fact, the way forward is the integrity and love that can be repeatedly created in these ephemeral interactions, right? Um, And so it's kind of like a a revaluing of the nature of the work, right? Uh, uh, So that's, I think, another one. And then the second one is, you know, bring a sincere understanding of the tragic structure of life that people are caught up in and find a way out of the pre-tragic, which ignores tragedy (laughs) or explains it away, like with karma or history or something, or getting stuck in the tragic, which is a place you can't live from being stuck in the tragic to what I call the post-tragic, right? Which is a way of being in tragedy, but not being of tragedy and of having a, Base metaphor of self or archetype of self that actually can fit within the tragic structure of the anima mundi, as I recommended. So I'm saying that move the coaching practice into the post tragic, which means working with clients in such a way that they are not sheltered from the tragic or have a way to escape from the tragic, but can actually embrace the tragic structure of the world with care um and so that often isn't going to look like uh strategies for efficiency and ways to get flow states and ways to achieve more success it actually looks like as you mentioned briefly you know how to be humble how to learn from mistakes and suffering uh, and how to continue to give care and love even in situations of extreme duress, which many people are going to be finding themselves in increasingly so as the economic and other situations unfold. So it's kind of like also a change in the value of the work, but a reorientation of the work away from the things that would have been appropriate when we weren't between worlds, which is like building companies and doing all that stuff. And I'm not saying this doesn't need to be done, but I'm saying like, it, that stuff is going to be demonstrably less important in the coming years than this other capacity set of uh, yeah, the non-heroic archetypes of self that allow you to slow down when you're on the road and be the good Samaritan um, instead of speeding by people who need care and help on your way to heroically triumph and building some sandcastle somewhere. Um, so, so yeah, so that, that would be my, those would be my kind of abstract, uh, but rather heartfelt recommendations.
0: Mm. Yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so that's, much, Zach. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would really just want to appreciate the generosity and the the breadth and the scope of this conversation. And, uh, I, I've been feeling like I want to get off social media for a while. I'm going to go downstairs now and, Block it on my phone.
1: (laughs) One at a time. And now I've succeeded. I've succeeded one person at a time
0: getting (laughs) off of there, you know. Good luck with that. Good luck Mm -hmm. with that. All right. Here you are on the other side of the podcast. Thanks for listening. Again, if you feel like sharing this, I'd really appreciate it. If you feel like leaving a review, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about the things we're doing, then you can head to coachesrising.com and you will find a sign-up box there. And yeah, I just I, I hope this podcast inspires you, touches something inside of you. For me, there's just something palpable taking place in these times. The more and more I speak to people out there in the world, the more I'm hearing certain themes and messages and and Uh, hearing on the front line of how in certain places things are really changing and in other places they're not, you know, in terms of the way we are consciously being in relationship to others and and business and leadership. So yeah, I'm hoping to bring all, all of that into this podcast more in the coming weeks and months. Be well, I'll be back again soon. Bye.